Welcome to the What We Lost podcast. Justin Trudeau won another election, albeit with another minority government. And Charlie Angus and Pierre Polyev held on to their seats. With Polyev making a bid for the conservative leadership, Jesse Brown was named one of Toronto Life's top 50 most influential Torontonians. And a dozen journalists earned accolades for their coverage of the CSSG controversy. Everyone seemed to benefit from the controversy, except the millions of youth in Canada who benefited from We Charity. I'm Martin Luther King III, and this is the What We Lost podcast. This is the truth about who won and who lost in the CSSG controversy. The Road Ahead In October 2021, a brief article on the CTV News website caught my eye. An organization that received $5.8 million from the federal government to help job seekers from underrepresented communities, the article began, is refusing to say if it paid the Prime Minister's mother, Margaret Trudeau, to speak at an event it held this month. The organization in question was Elevate, a Toronto-based nonprofit with a mission to bring together entrepreneurs, corporate innovators, policymakers, and students to help solve complex social problems. It had hired Trudeau to speak about mental health issues and the pandemic at Think 2030, an initiative to explore how best to accomplish the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Other prominent speakers included Chris Hadfield, Jane Goodall, and Emmanuel Acho. Among the event's partners were MasterCard, RBC, Interact, and The Globe and Mail. In addition to pursuing corporate partnerships, Elevate, the article explained, also lobbied the government for funding through the Federal Economic Development Agency for Southern Ontario, more commonly known as FedDev Ontario, and had one time been registered to lobby the Prime Minister's office as well. The $5.8 million in funding from FedDev was to help marginalized Canadians find work in the tech sector and creative industries. So a nonprofit agency got money from the federal government to facilitate job opportunities for members of the BIPOC and LGBTQ communities. And the same agency had also paid money to the prime minister's mother to appear in an event to speak about mental health. Where had I heard all this before? I could only imagine the outrage that Charlie Angus and Pierre Polyev had to be feeling. All these months they'd spent sounding the alarm about the CSSG and Trudeau's cozy backroom deals, and here he was right back at it again. What would Kate Bayen have to say? Or Mark Bloomberg? Or Jesse Brown? How soon would it be before hot headlines about the Elevate scandal hit the press? 
Instead, crickets. Of all the critics who'd pounced on We Charity during the CSSG controversy, conservative MP Michael Barrett was the only one to comment on the Elevate situation. And even that was just a single post on social media. And other than the CTV story I'd stumbled upon, news outlets were completely silent. In fact, the only other coverage I could find was a positive story the Globe and Mail had published about the $5.8 million funding announcement back in June. The paper failed to disclose to readers that it was also Elevate's media partner. And when Margaret Trudeau was hired to speak just months later, the Globe never published a follow-up article about the apparent quid pro quo involved in hiring the Prime Minister's mother soon after scoring millions in taxpayer money. Winners and Losers The reappearance of Margaret Trudeau back speaking at conferences and corporate events and advocating for mental health awareness, as she had done so eloquently and passionately on the We Day stage and at fundraising events for the charity, made me realize that while the world had been turned upside down for everyone who worked at or benefited from We Charity, the rest of the characters in the story came out just fine. Justin Trudeau wiggled free of the opposition's ethics complaints, was exonerated by Mario Dion, shrugged off the RCMP referrals, and then carried on with business as usual. In September, he even managed to retain power, despite having forced a pandemic election no one wanted. But the $610 million trip to the polls the most expensive in Canadian history, didn't give him the majority government he so desired. When all the votes were counted, the Liberals added only five seats to their total. In other words, Trudeau landed right back where he started. And on the campaign trail, after two years of pearl-clutching and hand-wringing by opposition politicians, the We Charity scandal wasn't even a blip on the radar screen. Charlie Angus and Pierre Polyev remain two of the highest profile members of their respective parties, and both are well-placed for leadership bids when those jobs become available again. After the election, Polyev regained his former role as finance critic, while Charlie Angus was voted best mentor by his fellow MPs for McLean's annual Parliamentarians of the Year awards. The two men easily held their seats in Parliament. Although Justin Trudeau outperformed them both, garnering an impressive 50.3% of the votes in his Montreal riding, Kate Bayon of Charity Intelligence rode the We Charity scandal to bigger and better things. Her organization is now actively working with media outlets like the Globe and Mail to assist in investigative reports. 
lawyer Mark Bloomberg is also still going strong and has solidified his position as a go-to guy for media commentary on the charitable sector. Jesse Brown's Canada Land website continues to thrive and his interest in We Charity shows little sign of abating. In 2020, he was named one of Toronto Life's 50 most influential Torontonians. Coming in at number 45, he just squeezed out Matt Galloway, host of CBC Radio's The Current, and Sally Cato, the broadcaster's general manager of entertainment, factual, and sports. He and his team ignited a firestorm with their long-term reporting on the We Charity and its cozy relationship with the liberals gushed Toronto life. When the dust settled, a finance minister was gone. $30 million in funding was withdrawn. We's Canadian operation was wrapped up, and Trudeau's eternal sheen was tarnished, and the Globe and Mail named Canada Land's White Saviors, one of the top podcasts of 2021, praising it for exposing crimes, lies, and a penchant for profit, even though the podcast had offered no real evidence of any of these things. Other journalists and media outlets were also flourishing in the wake of the scandal. Bloomberg was recognized for its coverage of We Charity by the Society for Advancing Business Editing and Writing, and reporter Natalie Obiko Pearson won the Columbia Journalism School's prestigious Christopher J. Wells Memorial Prize. In their citation for the award, the judges specifically called out Obiko Pearson's work on We Charity, which they said read like a financial thriller. The Globe and Mail was also lauded for its coverage of We Charity. In 2020, fellow journalists awarded The Daily a National Newspaper Award for political writing for its in-depth look at the public policy questions raised by the WE scandal and at the WE organization itself. The award was shared by Jeffrey York, Paul Waldy, Bill Curry, Marika Walsh, and yes, Jaron Kerr, Jesse Brown's protege from Canada Land, who landed himself a plum job at the country's leading newspaper. No award for the Toronto Star, as far as I'm aware, but the paper did just miss out on one coveted prize. After reporting several times about We Charity's supposedly suspicious real estate holdings, the Star put in a below-market value offer to buy the We GLC, the charity's crown jewel. Apparently, the paper could see the benefit in owning a state-of-the-art, technologically advanced building right in the downtown core of Canada's largest city. But in the end, they were outbid by a group of investors who paid more than the independent valuation for the property. And then in the you can't make this stuff up category, 
star journalist Marco Chone Ovid began investigating the new owners of the property and questioning whether we charity sold it on the cheap in some form of sweetheart deal. If it wasn't all so tragic, there would be comic irony in a star reporter suggesting that buyers might have underpaid when star executives appear to have concluded that they overpaid. I wonder whether Ovid, if he does eventually publish a story, will address the star's own below-market value offer as a member of the board subcommittee handling real estate sales before I left the organization, I can assure you that the process was as buttoned up and wrapped in external expert advice as anything I've seen. And what about Mark Kelly, Harvey Cashor, and the rest of the team at the Fifth Estate? As I write this, there are rumors that they are still pursuing leads, hunting down sources, and trying to unearth more on the organization. I know that no matter how much they dig, they're not going to find what they're looking for. Audit after audit has proven that We Charity spent donors' money exactly how they said they would, on the ground in impoverished communities in Kenya and elsewhere, by bringing people clean water and health care and schools for their children. But if they don't want to believe the numbers, Kelly and Cashier can trust the evidence they saw with their own eyes as they traveled throughout the Maasai Mara region. As Kelly told the CBC's Matt Galloway in a radio interview, the impact is real. Looking back, it is easy to understand why these people did what they did and said what they said. For politicians like Angus and Polyev, it was a political gambit that ultimately didn't pay off. Journalists needed clicks and headlines, particularly to stay relevant in the age of social media and alternative news sources. And those weren't going to come from a sober separation of fact from fiction. And pundits needed to claim their moment in the spotlight when opportunity knocked. None of which is to say that We Charity was blameless. The organization made its fair share of gaffes and missteps along the way. And I take a measure of responsibility for that. But the answer to why Canadians swallowed it all is more elusive. Why were people so quick to accept that we and the Kilbergers were up to no good when they were presented with no actual evidence that laws were broken, ethical standards were breached, or money was missing? Why were supporters of the charity so quick to go into hiding when their own contributions were called into question? Why did no one produce a scathing documentary about how students were robbed of a CSSG in the middle of a pandemic? Why did no journalists write about the relationship between we and opposition politicians? Call out Charlie Angus for demanding an RCMP investigation off the back of testimony from an extortionist or ponder how the CBC could claim 
that multiple donors had fully funded the same international projects when no piece of paper said any such thing. Worst of all, why did almost no one talk to students, teachers, and project beneficiaries to get their perspective and assess whether the losses were worth it? Maybe it's because, as businessman Bill Elkington suggested to me, whenever Canadians have done something successful on the world stage, we have to tear it down, say we did it wrong, or say somebody got ahead. That person must have cheated. Or maybe we've become too accepting of what I called the Americanization of politics. Or perhaps we are simply too trusting of the media to tell us what to think. I don't have the answers, but I know these questions merit some soul searching. In the end, even if you dislike We Charity or the Killburgers, you should have concerns about the way their main critics behaved. And Canadians should ask themselves whether there was value in destroying a homegrown children's charity that inspired generations of young people to serve others. The losses are staggering. Millions of students will go without programming that focused on mental health and wellness. There will be no more We Day celebrations of local and international acts of service. No more Halloween food drives, walks for clean water, or campaigns to support indigenous communities. No more galvanizing young people to volunteer for thousands of other nonprofits and in impoverished communities around the world. There will be no new wells, community gardens, clinics, hospitals, schools, or entrepreneurial programs for women. These are things we've all lost. Arising from the ashes. For the organization, meanwhile, the fallout continues. Backed into a corner by ongoing misleading media coverage, the charity felt it had no choice but to explore legal options. As I write this, we Charity has publicly stated that it intends to file a lawsuit against the CBC for its false and defamatory reports, including suggestions made by the Fifth Estate that money destined for Kenya had gone missing, a claim the program didn't even try to prove. And Teresa Kilberger, mother of Mark and Craig, is suing Canada Land Jesse Brown, Jaron Kerr, and others for disseminating and propagating defamatory statements. This suit is in response to Canada Land's White Saviors podcast, where Brown recited journalist Isabel Vincent's charge made in 1996 that the Kilberger's mother had deposited hundreds of thousands of dollars in donations directly into the family's personal bank account in the early days of Free the Children. These were the exact same claims at the heart of the decades-old Saturday Night libel suit, which ended when the magazine and the journalist consented to a judgment by the court 
none of which Brown got around to telling his listeners. I understand why we charity and the Kilbergers feel it is important to set the record straight and seek redress for harms the charity and its beneficiaries have suffered. But at this point in our story, I'd like to look forward, not back. I take that cue from the interviews I conducted with numerous We Charity staff members. Despite everything that has happened, these remarkable people had little appetite for dwelling too long on the negative and their feelings of bitterness and frustration almost always gave way to talk of hope and a need to get back to doing good. For them, we was always more than just a place to work. It was a mission and a movement that was bigger than the charity itself and that needed to live on even if the organization did not. We charity got caught up in a wildfire that is beyond dispute, but even after the most devastating blaze, something survives. New life arises from the ashes. Over the past couple of years, there's been so much that left me stunned in a negative way, Mark told me. But if there is one thing that has floored me in a positive way, it is the dedication and strength of the WE team. Every day, they had to wade through a torrent of abuse. That's demoralizing when all you're trying to do is help others. And yet through it all, Robin continuing in Kenya, Scott in Ecuador, Delau in the office, and so many others, they continued to believe in the mission and were there to support each other. I don't have the words to say how much I love all these people. Delau shared Mark's feelings of gratitude and all. I had staff telling me that they were getting called out over the holiday dinner table, she said. Parents and siblings were pressing them to leave we because it would look better for their CV. How many people could resist that kind of pressure? But so many did, and to them, I am forever grateful. I, too, have deep admiration for the resilience and courage of the team at We Charity. It would have been completely understandable for people to walk away in the face of so much unrelenting criticism, but most did not flinch. I hope people take notice of that. The same is true of the hundreds of donors and educators who wrote to the CBC to express their concerns with the Fifth Estate's reporting. I had expected that some might retreat after a second incendiary documentary aired in November 2021, but instead they stood firm and said they continued to support we in a letter that was published in national newspapers across Canada. All these people refused to back down because they saw that amid the political sound bites and daily headlines, the organization never lost sight of its priorities. It delivered over a million emergency meals to families overseas, 
and provided COVID education and relief to more than 100,000 people in Kenya, Baraka Hospital was transformed into a vaccine distribution center and millions of dollars in medical supplies were shipped to the region. In Haiti, the team helped outfit a hospital with solar power. In Sierra Leone, work continued on a new high school. And at home in Canada, the We Schools team digitized 100% of its resources, including lesson plans, classroom activities, and self-care programming, ensuring that students would have access to these after We Charity Canada was no longer in existence. In addition, hundreds of thousands of students and teachers were supported through the pandemic with virtual We Wellbeing mental health resources. I would be remiss if I did not also give credit to my fellow We Charity board members who steered the ship through the storm both before and after I stepped down to write this book. The directors brought a degree of commitment and seriousness to their work that was truly inspiring. Governing an organization in the midst of an unparalleled crisis, particularly one that had people questioning that very governance, was thankless work. It would have been easy for people to say it was too much, but instead they stayed the course, asked hard questions of the Kilbergers and we management, took nothing for granted or on faith, and kept their sights firmly on protecting those who needed the organization most. On those days when I felt demoralized or wondered if the hits would ever stop, my fellow board members were there to boost me up and remind me of the reasons we all signed on with we in the first place. Many of them still have their sleeves rolled up, ready for whatever comes next. So what will that new life from the ashes look like? Now that We Charity Canada is no more, what does the future hold? Unfortunately, some of the international projects started by the organization before COVID and the CSSG were not completed by the time the charity started to shut down. As I explained earlier in the book, the We Villages model involved bringing a partner community to sustainability in five to seven years. The organization launched those projects expecting to have ongoing funding to see them through. But when the money dried up and the charity shut down, a new way forward had to be found. The solution was the sale of We Charity's real estate holdings, which had always served as a kind of large-scale rainy day fund that could be used if the worst happened. Even though those assets had been the source of considerable controversy and finger-pointing, they saved the day in the end in terms of delivering for impoverished people. The buildings owned by We Charity have now been sold, and the revenue generated has been allocated to two foundations, each with a distinct focus and purpose. We Charity Foundation will support operations in Kenya, completing half-finished work in many communities. 
the vast majority of projects were closed out by the end of 2021, with only a few left to complete over the next year or two. The Foundation will also sustain key projects that are beyond the core five pillars and require ongoing financial support, including Baraka Hospital, the boarding high schools, the Women's Empowerment Center, and We College. It is vitally important to continue this work for the sake of the children who need an education, the patients who need health care, the women who need earning opportunities, and the students who want to be trained as nurses, farmers, or entrepreneurs, and then use those valuable skills to benefit their communities. It's important to note that We Charity Foundation, although based in Canada, is largely governed by Kenyans for Kenyans. Dr. Steve Mainda, a respected local economist and healthcare expert, is the Foundation's co-chair, alongside former We Charity board member Jerry Connolly. And Kenyans make up 99% of the staff managing the projects on the ground. Carol Marat is still there, bruised but not broken. Her passion for empowering the women and girls of her region undiminished. Justice Mwenwa has taken up a new role as co-executive director of We Charity Foundation, working with Robin Wizawadi, who's been commuting from the U.S. to Kenya while waiting for her young children to be fully vaccinated. Craig and Mark, meanwhile, have stepped back so We Charity Foundation can have a fresh start. But the rest of the infrastructure, funded by donors and built by We, the wells and pipelines and water kiosks and primary schools, will be independently maintained by the communities they serve exactly as the charity always intended. It's devastating to think that there will be no new projects in Kenya, Ethiopia, India, and the many other countries where We Charity was active. But it's comforting to me that the five-pillar model left a meaningful legacy that anyone who worked for or supported We can be proud of. The second of the legacy entities, the Wellbeing Foundation, will continue to support youth mental health initiatives. Certain donors who funded the purchase and construction of the WeGLC asked that upon its sale, a portion of proceeds be directed to this important mission. The We Wellbeing team had already made great strides in creating a national K-12 curriculum in the belief that all children should have access to evidence-based mental health education in schools, including resources to teach brain health, resilience, and self-care. Now the program will continue to grow, adding new resources for students and educators, such as an online portal full of classroom tools and activities for all ages. Dalal is overseeing the next phase of We Charity, 
including its continuing operations as the organization winds down in Canada and carries on its efforts in the U.S. Under her leadership, We Charity U.S. is moving forward with the support of donors who've remained loyal. In fact, in the wake of the CSSG fiasco, several U.S. corporate donors conducted their own independent reviews of We Charity and then decided to double down on their involvement with the organization. Microsoft was one. When its review was complete, the corporation not only renewed its support, but increased funding in this time of great need. Microsoft has also made a commitment to help scale WE's educational programs and make them available in more countries worldwide. And even as Canada's public broadcaster, the CBC has focused on tearing down WE Charity, a new partnership has been forged with the flagship U.S. Public Broadcasting Service, PBS, stationed in Washington, D.C., to deliver WE Wellbeing resources to students across the U.S. The broadcaster adapted existing WE Wellbeing materials into an award-winning animated series to support social-emotional health and promoted the program to benefit schools and families. Thanks to supporters like these, We Charity U.S. will continue its work with teachers, students, and social entrepreneurs through virtual programming such as podcasts, videos, motivational talks, and curriculum kits. And the WE Schools and WE Wellbeing resources will remain available to educators around the world, including in Canada, through the power of digital technology. While it does not address or compensate for the huge loss that will be faced in Canadian classrooms because of the closure of WE Charity in Canada, it is at least a small comfort that young people from Vancouver Island to St. John's are not, through choices made for them by politicians and the media, deprived of programming offered to kids in Seattle and Boston. We Charity U.S. is also playing a key role in fundraising for projects in Ecuador, the one country where the organization's development work is not just continuing, but growing. As a caretaker of part of the Amazon rainforest and one of just 17 mega-diverse countries in the world, Ecuador has incredible global importance. We Charity U.S. and its American donors have always felt a personal connection to the Ecuadorian indigenous peoples who were a focus of much of WE's work there. With Kenya as a template, the goal is to build the same five pillars of sustainable development in regions like Chimborazo and Napo. This effort is taking place under the leadership of Scott Baker, who has returned to Ecuador from his COVID exile, reuniting with the dog he had to leave behind with family in 2020, working once again with the local team 
and living among the small remote communities he's supporting. Scott is rediscovering the passion he had as a young volunteer, camping out in the Kilberger's backyard in the early days of Free the Children. As for me to we, it is too soon to tell. It has been a parade of nonstop crises over the past two years, and Craig told me that because all the efforts have been focused on saving the charity, the social enterprise was put into hibernation. Also, so much of Me to We's model, the trips and retail sales is still broken because of COVID. But the hope is that the company can eventually be revived to continue creating employment for marginalized people and channeling funds to We Charity US and its global mission. I asked Craig where his head is at nearly two years after the nightmare began. He told me that he's worked harder than he ever has in his life just to ensure that all the impacts of a quarter century are not lost beyond recovery. There is a sense of responsibility, something he's felt since he was a young boy, that he very clearly carries with him. He admitted that he's feeling drained, but like Mark, he quickly pivots from focusing on his feelings to expressing deep gratitude to Dalal, Scott, Robin, Carol, Justice, and so many others who stayed on through the storm and fought to keep the mission alive. In a way, Craig is going back to where it all began, taking counsel from those who advised him in the early days, like Jeff Skull. He has never wavered in his conviction that social enterprise is the key to tackling the world's most pressing environmental and social issues. That conviction, he said, was only strengthened when he saw how quickly donor dollars can evaporate, a phenomenon he called the fragility of good. For that reason, he and Mark are still thinking about innovative ways to use social entrepreneurship to solve the sometimes insurmountable challenges facing our world. They know it will take time to come to terms with all that has happened and to truly take stock of the consequences. And they know that a lot of self-reflection is in order, but their defining and seemingly insatiable drive to do more is ever-present. The same idealistic ethic that Mark shared with me when we were 14, good enough is simply not good enough, still animates the way the brothers think about the years ahead. Where will those plans end up? That remains to be seen. But this much I can say. The doors of We Charity Canada may have closed, but the passion and idealism that drove the organization cannot be so easily locked away. Thank you for listening. You can download more episodes of What We Lost wherever you get your podcast. 
To learn more about Tafik Rangwala's national bestseller or to buy the book, visit whatwelost.com and discover the real story behind the CSSG controversy.